me, if you will, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I said last week that as we look at the book, you have to keep in mind the theme of the entire epistle. And Paul gives that in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And then he says, for in it a righteousness from God, or of God, is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So in the gospel, there is a power of God that will give to the believer a righteousness from God. So then Paul sets out to show how many are there who need that gospel. And the answer is everybody. And from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to put the whole world under condemnation. He's going to put the whole world under the wrath of God. He has spoken in the last part of chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, about the immoral Gentile, grossly immoral, sins that are obvious, sins that are uh, considered to be much, much worse than perhaps others. And he ends with a list that would encompass everyone. Uh, but perhaps there is a Jew standing by or a more moral Gentile who is saying, that's it, Paul, give it to them. Yeah, they're all filthy sinners. And so Paul turns to that man, and this is in the form in chapter 2 of, of a diatribe where you have an argument with another opponent. Uh, but he says, in essence, if you think that you're not included in chapter 1, you didn't understand it. So let me say to you right now, if you think that you are not included in Romans chapter 1, you didn't get it. For you were definitely included. And so am I. And so is everyone else. And so Paul now will begin this argument with the Jew and the moral Gentile. Now, there, there's been, uh, there, there has been a divide for centuries about exactly who Paul is talking to in chapter 2. I don't really think it much matters because the, the goal that Paul is going towards is that to show that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he, he sets out to prove to the Jew that he is a sinner. And he comes on three different levels. First, the one who says, well, I'm a Jew. I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham. I cannot be a sinner. And then secondly, the law. One who says, well, we have the law of God. And Paul is going to say, doesn't matter. If you don't keep the whole law, then you're condemned by it. And then finally, it's going to end with the sign of the covenant of circumcision. And he's going to say, if that's only an outward ritual and not an inward reality, then it doesn't matter either. So he's in chapter 2. Now, this is important. I'm going to say this a number of times as we go through here. Paul is not preaching the gospel in chapter 2. He's preaching law. He is not preaching justification by faith alone. He is preaching 
condemnation. There is condemnation for everyone, whether you have the law or don't. He's going to say if the Jew has the law yet doesn't keep it all, he's condemned. He's going to say to the moral Gentile who has a moral consciousness, a sense of right and wrong, if you don't live perfectly, that doesn't matter either. In essence, he's going to say that men don't live up to all the light they have. Sometimes you hear that, you know, well, I think God will excuse men who live up to all the light we, they have. Well, no one does that. that. That's Paul's whole point, is that no one lives up to all the light that they have, whether it's the Jew who has the law or the Gentile who has a sense of moral consciousness, of right and wrong. The, re, the reality and the inescapability of the judgment of God is a theme that runs throughout Holy Scripture. There are several possibilities of escape for the person who offends against human law. In the first place, it's possible that the person's offense will never become known. You could commit a crime and never be caught. No one would know it. Secondly, there is a chance that a person might be able to escape the bounds of legal jurisdiction under which the crime was committed. And further, after apprehension, there could be a breakdown in the legal process. Or you could have a really, really good lawyer who got you off. And finally, the ultimate hope of the criminal is, even if he is incarcerated, he might escape and go somewhere where he can avoid any more detention. There are no such possibilities with God. It is unthinkable that a sin, a crime, might escape the attention of the one of whom it is said, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. The divine judgment is not only real and inescapable, but it is also just. The words judgment and justice are very closely related. Justice is the quality of being righteous or impartial while judgment is the activity of rendering a decision. Romans chapter 2 particularly deals with God's dis distributive justice, whereby he executes the law, distributing justly the rewards and the penalties. So the distributive justice is of two kinds, remunerative and retributive. Remunerative justice has to do with rewards for men and angels. It proceeds on the grounds of relative merit only, for we have no absolute merit. Retributive justice is made necessary by the reason of sin. Um, it refers to the infliction of penalties. Remunerative justice is the expression of the divine love. Retributive justice is the expression of the divine wrath. And while man never merits his reward, he always deserves the penalty of his sin. The apostle has demonstrated the guilt of the Gentile in chapter 1. Now he turns again, as I said, to the person who is very uh, loudly agreeing with him and cheering on this condemnation of those filthy sinners. Uh, he turns to the Jew and says, Do you think that you are going to escape? And again, as we go through these verses, 
It's easy to get lost. It's easy to get sidetracked. There are some parentheses here, for instance, in chapter 2 that have a tendency to throw you off. So keep, keep in mind the purpose of God in the, or of Paul in these verses. And Paul's purpose is very, very expressly explained in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That, that is his purpose. Um, God's judgment is righteous. And by this standard, all men are guilty. By this standard, all men are guilty. He begins in, in, in verses 1 through 16 with the guilt of the hypocrite. And he says that God's judgment is according to reality. Therefore, an inference drawn all the way back to chapter 1, verse 32. People know that those who sin are worthy of death, and in his act of judgment of others, the Jew admits this also. So he is without excuse. In verse 2, the Paul, the Paul introduces the first variation of the principle of righteous judgment. God's judgment is based on truth in the sense of reality. When someone uh, tests gold, uh, they only consider the metal that is being assayed. doesn't matter where it came from, uh, but only what it is. The judgment of God concerns itself only with the reality of a matter. In spite of this truth, there are always those who think they can escape the inescapable. That's the ones that Paul addresses in verse 3. Notice the, the stress on the second you. Do you think you, because you are a Jew, will escape? Surely not. Verse 4 introduces the alternative. Is it that you have such a poor estimate of God's goodness that you think it gives you a license to sin? We're going to look at this again in detail in weeks to come. But think about this. The goodness of God, the mercy of God, means that man has not yet been destroyed. That should cause man to see that God is a merciful God and cause him to repent. But it doesn't. He, he just scoffs at the goodness and the mercy of God. He says, wow, everybody, all these preachers say that, that Christ is coming again. He's not come yet. Where is the promise of his coming? He's a slacker. This is the way Peter uses it in 2 Peter. He's a slacker, meaning he's not, he's not going to do what he says. They take advantage of God's mercy by treating God's mercy with contempt when the goodness of God is designed to lead you to repentance. You should look and say, I'm not yet destroyed. What a merciful God. Therefore, I should repent. And then he says that God's judgment is according to works in verses 5 through 11. Now again, he's not preaching the gospel. He's preaching the law. Uh, Paul is here saying that if you want to be judged by the law, fine. 
God will judge you by the law. If you've not kept it in every point, then you're guilty. You're a sinner. If you want to be judged by the light that you have, a sense of moral consciousness, a sense of right and wrong, fine. But you don't live up to that either. Remember that the Jew thought that he was automatically guaranteed heaven for no other reason than because he was a Jew. There was a, a saying in some of the extra biblical writings that said, Abraham, Abraham will sit at the gate of Gehenna, the gate of hell, and he will not permit a circumcised Israelite to go down there. Couldn't, couldn't happen. Verses 7 through 11 amplify this condemnation of the Jewish attitude of claiming exception from divine judgment because of their special place in election uh, and revelation. But God's judgment is not according to one's privileges, but according to one's deeds, as the Mosaic law teaches. Remember what Paul is going to say in the book of Galatians, what is the purpose of the law? It's a teacher. It's a teacher. What's it supposed to teach you? You can't keep it. No matter what you do, you can't keep it. Why, when the, when the man came to Jesus and said, what is the first and the greatest commandment? Jesus said, it's this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You can't do that. Neither can I. Apart from grace, you can't do that. It's not possible. You can't do it. Again, Paul's whole purpose here is to show us that we are sinners. And as I said last week, if this was all that we had, man, this would be depressing. But it's designed to lead us to the good news. The law is designed to take you to the gospel, where the power of God for salvation is, where there is a righteousness that comes from God, God's own righteousness that will be imputed to those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. No respecter of persons with God. Again, verse 12, God shows no partiality. He will judge people according to the knowledge of His will that they have. Religious connections won't mean anything in that day. It won't matter if you've gone to a Baptist church all your life. What will matter is have you put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you believed this gospel that is the power of God unto salvation? Uh, the four of verse 13, looks back to the, the clause, last clause of verse 12 and explains why the Jew will be judged by the law. Mere knowledge will not satisfy for divine justice. It is not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law. They will be declared righteous. If you could keep the entire law, you could be declared righteous. Only one person ever did that, Jesus Christ. Without sin, he kept the whole law of God. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. Then he went to a cross and died in the place of those who have not done that. Those who will believe on him. If only the doers of the law can be justified, 
then all are guilty. All are condemned. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Paul confirms this by saying, Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Uh, there, is, there, there is no person in the Jewish religion who ever kept the law except Jesus Christ. There is no Gentile. He, he begins to talk about the Gentile who does not have the law. They do perform moral acts. There are Gentiles, those who do not have the law, who obey their parents, who are kind to their neighbors, who perhaps give to the church. They do good works, but they only do them partially. The law, they do not, however, they do not even keep that perfectly. And so they too are without excuse. They have no excuse because they don't live up to that sense of right and wrong, that moral consciousness that they have. Verse 15 demonstrates that the evidence of the Gentiles, the evidence that the Gentiles do have a law from God, but not the moral law. He says the work of the law is written on their hearts. He doesn't say the law is written on their hearts, but rather the work of the law. It's left its stamp on their mind and their conscience. Uh, and that conscience that Calvin called a guardian appointed for man combines with the divine law for a double witness to moral truth. The effects of the fall on the conscience makes sure that it is not an infallible guide. Sometimes people say, well, let's let your conscience be your guide. Now, the only problem with that is your conscience has fallen. <laughs> it, it, it can be a guide, but it's not an infallible guide. It can lead you wrong. Now, verse 16 goes back to verse 12 because verses 13, 14, and 15 are a parenthesis. You could, you could jump from the end of uh, or verse 13 to verse 16 without breaking up the flow of the verses at all. Uh, so this judgment is a future judgment on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of all men by Jesus Christ. According to my gospel, by Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul has just made the point that people are to be judged by the light they have, whether they have the gospel or not. But those who do not have the gospel don't live up to all that light they have. And those who have the law do not keep the law perfectly. And so there is a judgment coming through Jesus Christ. This judgment will be without partiality. This judgment will be according to truth. And all will be condemned. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We might just note here, if Jesus Christ sits in judgment on the secrets of people, then he must have infinite knowledge. Therefore, he has to be God. 
another, just another proof of that. In verses 17 through 29, really throughout the remainder of the chapter, Paul elaborates on the peril of the Jews. They're guilty of thinking much too highly of themselves and too poorly of others. And so they stand in great jeopardy. They possess enormous privileges, and he, he outlines those. But they do not live up to their privileges. Their practice does not match their privilege. And, he, and he's going to end the chapter by saying that they should not put their trust in the ultimate covenantal relationship that they think they have. The outward sign of circumcision. Because he says if there's no inward reality, that doesn't matter. So he begins in, in verse uh, 17 by talking about privileges that relate to the Jews themselves. Uh, they were Jews, first of all. That honorable name by which they uh, have a special relationship with Abraham and descendants that are supposed to love God. The second claim had to do with the confidence, the Jewish confidence in the law, in the Mosaic law. It was given to them. It wasn't given to the Gentiles. They rest in it. Confidence that simply the possession of it, not the doing of it, is life. And again, there is some truth in these things. The Jews were descendants of Abraham. They were chosen by God, while others were not. But remember, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles and to the world. And they did not do that. They were given the law, and the others were not. But they were not to be just hearers of that law. They were to be doers of it. They were to keep the law. You have to, you have to always keep that in mind when you read statements in the Bible that this man or this woman was righteous or blameless. It doesn't mean they were sinless. It meant when they did not keep the law, they went and offered the sacrifice in the tabernacle or the temple for it. That was, when, when God gave the law, He also gave all of those offerings and sacrifices to show men, look, you, you're not going to be able to keep this law because you're a sinner. And so I'm going to make provision for you. And the blood of bulls and goats and lambs foreshadow the blood that will ultimately cleanse you from sin, the blood of Jesus Christ. The third claim is that God is their God, not the God of others. There's a measure of truth in that as well, for it is through the Jews that Messiah, the Christ, will come. But that claim obscures a broader truth. The special relationship to God was to be, again, the means of the ingathering of the Gentile world. So Paul will say later in the epistle, chapter 3, verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. The fourth claim is that they know the will of God. Uh, maybe the definite article here suggests the one perfect will of God. Uh, and again, they know the will of God, they just don't do the will of God. The final claim relative to themselves is that they have capacity because of their knowledge of the law to appreciate moral distinctions. Uh, 
The Jews had all of these privileges, but rather than see the truth of where that was supposed to lead them, it led them to hypocrisy. It led them to believe that they were good and righteous and holy simply because they were a Jew, because they had the law, because they were God's special people, because they knew God's will. Their practice didn't coincide with their privilege. We have to be careful as believers that <laughs> that doesn't happen to us as well. That thinking because we're justified by faith alone, that that faith is alone. That nothing else is required of us. That we are not to strive to obey God and to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Then in verses 19 through 20, there are five privileges that relate to others. And they're a telling description of the Jews' uh, opinion of you Gentiles. Blind, in the dark, foolish, infants. They, they, they didn't think much of the Gentiles at all. Uh, Paul is, is doing what Nathan did to David in this diatribe. He's pointing to the Jew and saying, you are the man. You are the one. You have sinned. In spite of all of these privileges, you have not lived up to your responsibility. And so ultimately, he says, because of the way you have lived, in spite of all these privileges, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Quoting from Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. He says, the Jews are responsible for the blasphemy of the one true God. Uh, there's, another, there's another thing for us to watch and to be careful. If you claim the name of Christ, if you claim that you are a Christian, watch how you walk before others. Make sure that because of the way you live, <laughs> that you're not someone else's alibi. I've always felt that one important thing that I wanted to do in life was never to be someone's alibi. I mean their alibi for not coming to Christ. I did, and in spite of my best efforts, I've sometimes become someone's alibi because I'm a sinner. But I don't want people to look at me and say, if it were not for Bob Kerr, I'd be a Christian. If it were not for him, because he cheats and he lies and he manipulates and he, dece he deceives. I want to live before others in such a way that I do not provide them with an alibi. Paul says, you Jews, having all of these privilege, privileges, have become the Gentiles' alibi to blaspheme God, which is a terrible thing. So in the last part of the chapter, he examines the religious ordinance of circumcision. And basically he says that it's not enough to just have the physical right. It was a right of separation that identified Jews as the people of God. But he said if there is no inward reality, then it doesn't matter. He in essence says you are not a Jew. You're not a Jew if you do not have the inward reality. A Jew is one who is one inwardly, not just outwardly. 
the people of God. Who are the people of God today? I'm looking at them. They're not the people that occupy Palestine today. No. The people of God are those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who have the inward reality of Christ. We, we could transfer this, this necessity of reality to baptism. You could be baptized in every lake, pond, creek, mud puddle in McMinn County and still die and go to hell. If there is no inward reality, then baptism doesn't mean anything. What is baptism? It's an outward sign of an inward change. It is a public profession of the faith that you have placed in Jesus Christ that He has forgiven your sin and has imputed to you his own righteousness. Circumcision was the sign or seal of righteousness, only valid if the covenant was kept. Baptism is the sign or seal of salvation, only valid if it is in truth, if you have truly repented, if you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ. And again, again, in chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to go through chapter 2 a, a, a good deal more slowly. Not as slow maybe as chapter 1, although I make no promises. But he's not, again, he's not preaching the gospel here. He's preaching the law. He's not preaching justification. He's preaching condemnation. Don't get confused. He's saying that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's going to follow what I read from chapter 3, verse 9 with, there's none righteous, not one. There's none that seeks after God. Uh, the last verse, there's a telling word on the, ver the, the word praise. But a Jew is not one, one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The word, uh, the word Jew comes from a Hebrew word that means to praise. So it's as if Paul closes the section by saying that the true Jew is the inward one, whose circumcision is also inward of the heart. That is the one. The true Jew is the Jew whose Judaism, literally his praise, is not from people but from God. Circumcision of the heart is not something that one can perform on oneself. Only God can do that. Only God can perform that. The word of Moses contains a great theological truth for us here when he said, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, meaning that it was far more than the outward sign. There was an inward reality. So to God's grace belongs the final praise. The importance of of chapter 2 is that Paul is saying it is not just the possession of truth that matters but rather the practice of it as over against the empty practices of the religious rites and rituals of the Jews or of the moral consciousness of the Gentile. It is the grace of God and God alone that being, brings praise. The law condemns all men. 
all men are condemned because they've not lived up to the light they have. What is our only hope then? The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe. For in it there is a righteousness from God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God,